Hey, welcome back to the Mountain Park Church podcast. My name is Andrew, and wherever you are listening to this from, I just want to say it's a privilege to spend some moments together with you as we uh, press into God's Word together. We're in this series through the book of Revelation. Today, we're unpacking chapters two and three, and I just want to remind you that this is a survey, so this is not a verse-by-verse verse thing. So there's so much stuff that we don't get to talk about in one message covering uh, all of the content that's found in chapters two and three. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to uh, alert you to something. Near the end of the sermon, you may hear a bit of uh, uh, something confusing, a bit of an altercation that happened with somebody coming in the back and shouting, hey, uh, and freaking everybody out. Um, it was actually a planned thing. The reason I'm telling you about it now is it's not going to translate well over podcast. The, the intent of it will be totally missed uh, as you're listening to this. The intent of it was to illustrate uh, and, and experience dynamically in the room what it means to repent, to snap our neck around and turn around. And uh, so that's actually what happened when we asked someone who's literally the only person I know who has a louder voice than me to walk in the back and shout, hey. And some people got freaked out. Um, I actually didn't anticipate well um, that some people would be really frightened and scared and just even considering everything that's gone on uh, with that school shooting in Texas and other things. I. I kind of really scared a few people. So I think the illustration worked really well, but I didn't really, because I have a thick head sometimes. So I didn't really think through <laughs> that different people would be scared. And there were some police officers who looked like they were ready to jump into high gear. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry if you were here and like, I totally freaked you out. I'm really sorry about that. Um, but it was meant to be an embodied illustration of what it actually means to repent. And when Jesus is inviting us to repent, what does that actually mean uh, for us? And so anyway, I just wanted to explain that before we jump in. The other thing I wanted to explain is I pretty uh, heavily lean on and, and dive into um, sexual sin and idolatry in the stuff that's pervasive in our culture as we're talking about the temptation toward idolatry that's found in some of the churches. And I just, even though that's the one I was focused on, that's not the only one present in our culture. Uh, we certainly could have spent time talking about uh, the pursuit of wealth and a whole bunch of other things. And so I don't want you to think that that's the only thing that is worth talking about. We just had limited time. and so. That was the one I just sensed God saying, I want you to really talk uh, bluntly and, and boldly about that. And I also want you to know too that um, as we talk about things like that, that there can be a tendency 
uh, to feel condemnation or shame for stuff that's gone on in our past. And that's not the heart of God at all. He brings conviction and the Holy Spirit will certainly bring us conviction about specific things in our life that he's inviting us to bring into the light that he's inviting us to repent of and turn from and, and receive and ask for the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, but if you are someone who has experienced sexual trauma uh, and significant brokenness in a serious way in your past, I just I want you to know that there is a restoration and grace and redemption through Jesus in those things. We don't actually need to walk in that brokenness or condemnation for all of our days as it relates to that. And so I just don't want that to be lost um, in sort of the tone that I was uh, expressing through that message. So if you have any other questions about that or anything related to this series, you can email me, Andrew, at MP, as in Mountain Park, Andrew at MP.church. I'd be happy to engage with you. Having said all of that, uh, here is week three of our series in Revelation. Amazing, welcome here today. I really didn't know how controversial my pink pants were last week. I got a lot of comments that I was wearing basically what the implication was, this is an appropriate color to wear uh, today. But anyway. I'm over it, and uh, we're going to be okay. This is uh, week three we're stepping into of this uh, series in the book of Revelation. And I mentioned to you before, we're doing some different things. And, no, I need that. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's just so that I can go like that. <laughs> oh, I was about to make a joke, but... Oh, well. Um, so one of the things we're going to do is we're actually reading through the whole book. Revelation, and actually, the entirety of Scripture was meant to be read out loud in the gathering of God's people. The Bible was never intended to be a book that you just kind of hide in your drawer and read every now and then. It was written to be corporately read and talked about and discussed and so uh, we're going to do that. And throughout the next, whatever, nine weeks, we're going to have different people reading. So Wes and Kendra, you guys can come on up. And uh, Wes and Kendra are going to be uh, reading today from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If you have uh, your scripture journal, you can pull it out. If you do not have one of these yet, so this is the book of Revelation. We're reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to give this to you right now because I am fumbling it around. Um, you can pull this out now. If you do not have one, uh, but you would like one, I think they're, they're 10 bucks or whatever. Our, the point in having these is to bring them with you. So you actually bring this little scripture journal with you and to take notes. There's blank pages across from every page. So you can take notes during the message. If there's anything uh, remotely intelligent that is being said, you can take notes on that. If you don't have one and you'd like one, just put up your hand and we have some ushers back there. They'll grab a few copies. So there's one here. You guys can grab some copies from the, uh, 
They're right in that bookshelf there at the um, information bar. Yeah. So uh, keep your hand up for just a second and we'll get uh, a couple of copies to you. Um, so we are in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's one thing I want to encourage you with. If you aren't here with one of these, uh, either you can appropriately snuggle up to somebody beside you uh, if they're married to you or in your family. Maybe just be cautious if you don't know them. But um, you could snuggle up beside somebody and read off of it. Or the other thing you can do, this book, again, was meant to be heard. So instead of just staring at the screen, we'll have the words up there. I want to invite you to actually close your eyes and hear what God's word is saying today. Don't just look at it, but actually hear what it is. So you can follow along as you uh, see fit. If you want a uh, copy and you don't have one, just raise your hand still and we'll get one to you. All right, guys, it's off to you. Thanks. Well, I'm Kendra. And, and I'm Wes. And we're both introverts, so if you want to close your eyes, we, would, we love it. We encourage it. Yes, please. <laughs> All right. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in the Tyria, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thetiria, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned that some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my... Father, and before his angels. He who has, a ear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no, one's op no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will, make the, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are... Lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and I sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amazing. Thanks, guys. Hey, let's stand for a second. There's no real reason I asked you to do that other than to give your legs a change of posture. But let's pray uh, together as we talk about what we just heard this morning. Father, we do humble ourselves under your word. And we ask that uh, you would shape us and form us by your word. I just invite you, Holy Spirit, to be the one that comes to bring truth and conviction and life. I invite you to be the one that brings counsel to us right now. We dedicate this time in our lives, our families, our kids downstairs. We dedicate this property and this space to you, Jesus. And I just command any unholy power that is present, any ruler or principality, authority in the unseen realm that is opposed to the word of God or the desire of the Father to be bound right now and to leave this place. I restrain every demonic principality right now in Jesus' name. Command them to be subject to the Lordship of Jesus. Every lying spirit, every deceiving spirit, every distracting spirit, I command you now to come under the authority of Christ 
Present yourself to him for his judgment and determination. We ask, Holy Spirit, that we would hear the words of Jesus today and not just hear them with our ears, but listen to them deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. As I mentioned, uh, as we started this series, this is an overview, a survey of this book. And so we're going to be trying to condense some, uh, some specific thoughts and principles from each week from the chapters that we do read. And so what we're going after in this series is not necessarily a verse by verse, super sort of inductive kind of study. You can do that on your own and I encourage you to do that. This is an overview of the major themes of the book of Revelation, the themes about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and what we're facing in the world around us. And if you've been tracking with us in this year at all, you know for a bunch of the year already, we have been in a series called Counterformed. And that series was a, an uncovering, a look at uh, the major forces that are at work against us and against the purposes of God in our life. You can find those in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. Some people call them the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity is our own flesh and just what we want, living according to what we determine to be best for our life, obeying our desires and impulses. That's part one of the holy, unholy trinity. The second element of the unholy trinity is the world. And the world in scripture is, uh, a, a German word is best used to describe it, zeitgeist. It's prevailing cultural narrative. It's sort of the prevailing winds that blow across the earth that have influence in our life. It's culture's pull in our life. And the third is Satan himself and his kingdom of darkness. We're going to see in Revelation two and three, Jesus's message to these churches is to alert them to these forces at work in their life. So remember Revelation, this book was written to real people in the first century. So even as we read chapters two and three, we can't derive meaning from it that they didn't have themselves. It can't mean something totally different for us that it didn't mean for them. The fact is that we've learned that as we've uh, just been introduced into this book, that word revelation is the Greek word, word apocalypse, and that word means to pull back, to uncover, to unveil. And what God is doing in chapters two and three is unveiling the really real reality that the churches are facing in Asia Minor in the first century. So this was written to them, but also applies to us, is written for us. These principles that Jesus is underlying still apply today. These same uh, um, three of the unholy trinity are still at work pressing in on us 
pressuring us to walk away from the calling of Jesus in our life, pressuring us to cave to culture, pressuring us to, to live our life based on our own desires and our own feelings and what we just want. And so Jesus is pulling back the curtain and he's saying, look, things aren't what they seem always. There are other forces at work in your life. And the reason it's so hard to grow spiritually, the reason it's so hard to fully live for Jesus is because these other forces are bearing down on you and exacting pressure on you. And unless you're aware of them, you have no ability to recognize them and combat them. So we're gonna do a bit of an overview here. I have mentioned to you and I'll keep mentioning the, there are two primary purposes of apocalyptic literature, which this book is apocalyptic. This book is a letter. Revelation is the longest letter in scripture and it's a prophetic pastoral uh, letter. But the two primary purposes of apocalyptic literature, number one, are to reveal the unseen reality of the present. So what's happening in heavenly places in light of what we're living through today. And the second purpose is to reveal the unseen reality of the future. What will happen in light of what we're living through today. And that's what Jesus is doing. In chapter one, we, uh, we got an, uh, a, an unveiling and a pulling back of the nature of God and who he is and Jesus, who he is, the description of Jesus in chapter one. And from the outset of this book, we are called to look at and listen to Jesus. That's the, one of the primary messages of this book is are you directing your attention to Jesus and are you listening to him in your life? So these seven messages, and I'm saying messages very specifically. Some people call them letters. Um, actually, these aren't letters. There's actually nothing in the structure of these seven messages that's consistent with letter writing in the ancient Near East. These are messages of two kinds. One, these are prophetic oracles of Jesus. The second purpose of these letters is to be a royal edict. So Jesus is speaking prophetically and he's speaking as king. He's speaking as Lord and God. Cairo Kyrios is Lord and God. I have all authority. I'm speaking to you prophetically about your spiritual life, but I'm speaking to you as Lord of all lords. These are seven prophetic messages given to the church. There were more churches around John's time. But remember, we've talked about this already. Numbers in Revelation are largely symbolic. So yes, there are seven actual churches he's writing to, but there were more churches around. Why didn't John write to the church at Colossae or uh, Galatia or other ones? Well, because John in using seven, number one, these churches represent sort of the Roman postal route. These were the common sort of highways to get around Rome. And let's throw that graphic up there, Davy, of those churches. So this is like the literal Roman postal route. John is on that little island down in the middle sort of 
uh, left middle of the screen, and he's writing to these seven churches who were on the postal route, but seven being the number of completion and fullness and perfection. What John is saying and what Jesus is saying is these seven messages apply to all of the body of Christ for all time. So this isn't just only specifically to these churches. This is specific to every church that will ever meet in any city for all time. What Jesus is about to uh, walk us through are the major things that confront his church, the major things that were confronted in following him in our lives, in our church, in Niagara, as well as it was in that first century. Jesus has a structure and form to each one of these messages. He starts with a sentence from the one. In the Greek, it's literally says the Lord. And what Jesus is actually doing is he's describing himself as God and saying, as God, I am declaring this to you. Jesus says, from the one, and then he goes on to describe in each of the churches a specific attribute of his that's already been revealed from Revelation 1, but a specific attribute of his that connects directly to that church. So notice that not one church gets all of the fullness of Jesus that looks totally like him. He connects an attribute of his that they need for life. So Jesus, very specifically, he's not being arbitrary about this. He's connecting his attributes to the unique circumstances and needs of each church. In that, Jesus is saying, in your unique circumstances, in Niagara, at Mountain Park, I possess what you need to walk victorious and to overcome. For everything you are specifically facing as a church in Niagara, I have character attributes within me that are useful and helpful to you. And that's what he's saying to each one of the churches who are facing very different situations. And to the church in India, he says, I have what you need to follow me in your villages and cities, in Mumbai, in Egypt, in Cairo, in Alexandria, in Jerusalem, all over, in Mosul, and in Afghanistan, and in Latin America, everywhere the church is found, Jesus is saying, I possess within me the specific things you need to walk faithfully and to overcome in your life. And then he moves on, and he's addressing an angel. He says to the angel, and every church he does this. And there's a few possibilities here with what he means. Number one, he's talking about a real angel that he's addressing, a specific angel that is entrusted with the life of that church in that city. Number two, he's writing to a spiritual leader in the church who is acting in a spiritual sense as an angel over the church. Or number three, he's writing to the sort of the prevailing spirit of the church. Given the way that Every other instance in Revelation, when John is talking about angels, when Jesus is revealing angelic realities, they're very specific and real angels. 
Given that reality, I think it's most likely for us to presume that Jesus is speaking to a specific angel who's been given charge to watch over his church and his churches. And this is consistent with scripture. In Daniel, we find that he's entrusted angels to govern nations. In Hebrews 1, we're told that God has sent angels as ministering spirits to those who follow Jesus. Notice here that in in Hebrews even, he doesn't say that God just kind of floods the earth with angels and they help old people in need, help you get across the street and help you, you know, make better decisions and help the world. That's not the purpose of angelic assistance. Angels are specifically and only given to followers of Jesus to assist them in following and walking out the call of God in their life. So this is consistent with how God describes the reality of angelic presence in other parts of scripture, that there are angels who are angels over whole nations and territories, angels who are entrusted to walk with us. Sometimes I feel like mine is sleeping, but um, what do I know? (laughs) We don't wanna carry this too far because the purpose is not to be fixated on angels. The purpose is to be fixated on Jesus, who's the one who's writing and directing these messages. So, These are actual angelic beings that are entrusted with governing the life of the church. And there's a larger theological sort of truth conveyed here. G.K. Beale says it in his commentary, the church's primary purpose is spiritual. Our primary purpose here is spiritual. We're We're not the Kiwanis Club, as good as they are. We're not the Rotary Club. Our purpose is spiritual. And this is a reminder of that, that our inherent purpose as a church is a spiritual one, not a social one. And that there is help available in heavenly places for us. As we try and walk out the call of God in our life as a church, the church in Niagara, God is saying your your fundamental purpose is spiritual and I have spiritual help for you. You're not left alone. I think that's part of what he's saying as he's addressing these angels to each church. And he goes on to say, Jesus says, in every one of these, he says the phrase, I know. I was thinking about that this week. It's so simple. But what Jesus is conveying over and over and over is I know what's going on. I know things no one else knows. I'm on the inside. I'm in the middle of your life. I'm in the middle of this church. I'm in the middle of Niagara. I know what's happening outside the walls of this church and I know what's happening in the heart of it. In every one of these cases, Jesus is not speaking from the outside saying, I see or I think. He's saying, I know. 
I know exactly what you're facing. I know exactly what kind of pressure is coming from the outside. And I know exactly what's going on in your heart. I know where you want to walk away from me. I know the things that are crippling you. I know everything that's going on. Jesus is speaking as the one who sees what nobody else sees and who knows what no one else knows. As true as that was for these seven churches in the first century, it's true today. He knows what the church is walking through on the earth today. He knows the trouble that the church faces in countries where it's illegal to gather together like this. Countries like Iran, where pastors are jailed and murdered for holding Bible studies in their homes. He knows. He knows that pressure. He knows the cultural and social pressure you and I are under. He knows the contents of our heart. He knows it all. And he's reminding us again, I'm in the center. I'm not on the outside. And Jesus follows this I know with an affirmation. It's always good to make that affirmation sandwich <laughs> when we're talking with people. He says, uh, declares an affirmation and then he moves on where appropriate. There's only two churches where he doesn't offer a correction, two of these seven, but he moves from affirmation to correction. See, I see what really needs to happen here. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he moves on to an exhortation to hear him and then a promise. I love how Jesus ends with a promise in all of these, if you're faithful to the end. And so I wanna just cover a few tactics of the unholy trinity we've talked about that are at work. I think that Jesus is just wanting to bring to light. The first one we see in the church in Ephesus, here's the first tactic, that truth is greater than love. Another way to say it is truth can substitute for love. Notice how in this church, he's praising them for their doctrinal fidelity. He's praising them for being aggressive and faithful with defending the boundaries of right orthodoxy and good doctrine. He's praising them for that. But then he moves in to add a correction and says, look, you, you've posited truth over love. You've posited your idea to the, the necessity you have to gain knowledge and know the right things over your ability to walk in love and demonstrate my character. Another way and a churchy way to say it is you value orthodoxy over orthopraxy, which means you value knowing all the right stuff, but you don't live it out. And so you're bringing truth to bear, but in your bringing truth to bear, it's coming with criticism. It's coming with fault finding. It's coming by condemning and shaming and pointing out the faults and flaws in others. You're, you're great at recognizing truth, but you're failing in recognizing that truth must be delivered through the spirit, which is love and gentleness and kindness. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Knowledge puffs up. And this church in Ephesus was so good. Paul was the one who founded this church. He pastored this church longer than any other church he founded. 
Paul pastored there. Timothy pastored there. John himself pastored there. They had great doctrine and we need right doctrine. We need that. But that doctrine became an end in itself and their life was directed around organizing themselves to to spot heresy and correct people who were in error. but not actually carrying devotion and love to the God who's over all of it. And so we buy into this lie, this threat from this unholy trinity that knowledge and truth are greater than love. You know, in Acts 20, 28, Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus and he's not gonna see them again. He's on his way to Rome. He's never going to see them. They kneel on the beach and he's commissioning them. He's entrusting them with the life of the church in Ephesus. And he says to them two things, guard your heart and shepherd the flock. And it seems to be that this church was really serious about shepherding their flock well, but they didn't entrust their lives to the first, which was guarding your heart. And God has... And Jesus today in our time has a correction to offer for us when we are obsessed with pointing out the faults in others, when we're obsessed with being right at the expense of those around us, when we're obsessed with being the ones that hold truth. Like just go on Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or whatever new thing they have coming, the, the, the obsession of our culture is I hold truth and I'm going to beat you with it. <laughs> and we use truth as a weapon. And this was a temptation that was faced in the first century. Sometimes our church values being right more than we value being patient and loving. Sometimes our churches value correctness over compassion. You know, it's interesting. Often the churches that are most insistent on right doctrine have the most narrowly defined secondary doctrines. And it just causes hurt and animosity and division. Just hop online right now and you'll see it. Here's the trap. Being right often leads to pride. Again, Paul says knowledge puffs up. Having knowledge and being right often leads to pride, which leads to a critical and fault-finding spirit. And this is what Jesus is warning this first church about. So we need truth and love together. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy together. I think also what Jesus is saying as an overarching statement is simply knowing what's true and agreeing with me about it is not the same as walking in a life of devotion with me. I want to repeat that. Simply knowing what's true and agreeing with Jesus about that is not the same as walking in devotion with him. And he's calling that out in his church. And in our Western church, we have a glut of knowledge. You know way more and I know way more 
than we practice. We like to amass knowledge, consume it at a frenetic pace, but we're slow to actually walk out devotion with God. And we've been tricked into thinking they're the same thing. The second thing, overarching theme that Jesus is talking to his churches about, to them then and us today, is compromise and indifference. Here's the trap, this, this second trap of the unholy trinity here is that gospel witness requires the favor of culture. So this is a huge trap in our Western church today that in order for me to be effective in the world, the world has to like me first. There were many blessings in our North American church in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. But one of the the challenges I think that Jesus would have for our Western church is you literally turned yourself on your head to gain the approval and favor of culture, to become like culture, to become so similar to culture that in your pride, you would invite people in and say, look, it's the same here as it is everywhere else. And we've bought into this lie that in order to have effective witness for Jesus, we need to be liked by the culture around us. These churches found themselves, interestingly enough, if you go in and study the historical background of each one of these churches, it's a fascinating study if you're into that kind of thing. Um, If you go in and study that, you'll see that these churches And the way Jesus is describing them are almost identical to the surrounding culture around them. These churches were not distinct from culture anymore. They were not the counterformed bride of Christ. They were culturally indoctrinated. And they were challenged with this belief that in order to be favored by culture, in order to win people for Jesus, I have to compromise my values. I have to compromise and be indifferent about the things Jesus calls me to be unique and distinct on. Here's a question we need to ask. Is our church, is your life, just ask this. This this letter is to the whole church, but there's a certain application to us individually. Is our church or your life indistinguishable from the culture you live in? Just think about that for just a moment. Your life, your everyday comings and goings, where you spend your money, how you value your time, what you invest in for entertainment, what what you do to bring pleasure and joy to your life, what you uh, hold as the highest values of of your life in this church even. Uh, Is there any difference between your life and your neighbors who doesn't profess to even follow Jesus? Is there any difference outside of being here right now? Or maybe occasionally opening up the YouVersion Bible app? What are the actual, indistinguishable, like totally concrete differentiators of your life as you follow Jesus that marks you from the culture that you live in? 
See, our, again, our Western church as a whole has bought this hook, line, and sinker that we can just fully immerse ourselves in the values and culture of the world around us and follow Jesus at the same time. That we can spend our lives working to amass great wealth for retirement. That we can spend our lives working to buy the boat and the cottage and the cars and the, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things. Like I said before, there's nothing wrong with them. What becomes wrong is when our whole life is driven by the same values for success that the world is. When we measure ourselves with their metric, and Jesus is pointing out that this is a tactic of the enemy to get us to compromise our lives and so what we've done in church, especially the Western church, is just we've sanctified the world's values. We have sanctified entertainment. <laughs> Pure flicks. We have sanctified the world's values and called it good. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I have called you to be in the world, but not of it. I've called you to be separated from me and my purposes. I think a good question you and I need to ask, and we need to ask this as a whole church, is have we just in our life done a good job of sanctifying, Christianizing the values of culture around us and slapping the label Christian on it? Or are we actually looking at and listening to and following the direction of Jesus in our life? What in your life would distinguish you, if you're honest, would distinguish you as set apart for the purposes of God in your neighborhood? That's a very convicting question for me to ask of my own life in our neighborhood that we live in. Because by all appearances, there's very little that's distinguishable. The third thing, the third tactic of the enemy is security and comfort. We see the church in Laodicea is bragging about their wealth and that was a wealthy, wealthy city. They're bragging about their wealth and their lack of need for God. I don't need you, God. I've got all this stuff around me. I've amassed wealth, I have comfort and security. The lie that we buy into is that if I have more, I'll give more. Jesus, if you would just bless me with this and bless me with that, then I'll be able to give more. And very rarely does that actually work out. <laughs> Often we have more and then we want more. We get more and then we crave even more than that. The next one that is covered here by Jesus is the idea of suffering. The enemy says you need to fight and Jesus says you need to die. This is so counterformational from our culture right now. This is so counterformational. And it was in their time, these Christians were living under heavy persecution, under the threat of death, 
They were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. They were being burned alive and scalded with hot oil. They were being killed for their faith in Jesus. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, the road that I walk is one of suffering, not one of fighting. This book of Revelation is gonna deeply challenge the enemy's temptation that what we need to do is fight back, to fight fire with fire. Jesus says, you fight by yielding to me. You fight by surrendering. You fight by dying. And this is where he unveils, he pulls back the curtain and he says, in heavenly places, this is flipped. The earth says, get your guns out, get your strength, get your body armor, get your, all your stuff, get it out and assume power. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God assumes power through weakness and gentleness, not through displays of strength. Next one here in this last one that we're called to confront, this tactic of the unholy trinity is idolatry. In several of these messages to these churches, Jesus is pointing out that they've become tolerant of immorality. He uses uh, the, a reference to Balaam, a prophet in the Old Testament. And Balaam was a prophet who, seeing the, the power of what it was like for God to bless Israel, Balaam was called in by a neighboring kingdom, a king that didn't wanna be conquered by Israel. And Balaam knew the only way to weaken Israel, the only way to undermine the work of God was to incite them into idolatry. Balaam knew the only way to undermine the power of God through their lives was to get them to corrupt their lives through idolatry and compromise. Immorality. We hear in this book a uh, 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 reference to a group called the Nicolaitans. We don't actually know who they were. We hear a reference to Jezebel. Most likely her name wasn't specifically Jezebel, but Jesus is identifying somebody who's operating within the church who's using the same spirit as Jezebel. And what Jezebel came to do back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, what she came to do, she married into the nation of Israel, was the wife of the king, and she said, honey, you can have your God, Yahweh, but I'm bringing Baal in with me. He's my God, and we can worship both at the same time. And she brought in 850 prophets of Baal, to come and corrupt the nation of Israel at the time, introduce practices of sexual immorality and all kinds of things. And we too today live in this culture that says sexual immorality is not a thing. You can do whatever you want with your body. It has no impact or bearing on your spiritual life. That is a lie from hell. The Bible is so clear and Jesus is being so specific over and over to point out specifically this area of sexual impurity. And our Western culture is a birthing ground, a breeding ground, a factory of pornography and sexual immorality across the earth. How long do you think it's going to be? How long 
will God turn his face and not bring judgment on the West because we have polluted the world with sexual sin. And now the church calls it good. You can be whatever you want. You can practice any sexual sort of expression. It doesn't matter. And there's those teaching in the church today that have said that. You're not bound to any traditional biblical sexual ethic. Just be you. Just do what feels good. And God and Jesus is challenging this idea that we can serve both God and indulge in immorality. What Jesus is not saying is, I want to condemn you for the mistakes you've made in your past. He's not saying that. He can redeem and he wants to redeem every mistake we've ever made. We're all broken sexually. He wants to redeem that, but he has his eye on where you're going. He has his eye on your future and saying, look, this is a trap of the enemy. Don't believe the lie that your body is just a, a bag of cells and carbon and flesh that you can do whatever you want with and it will have no spiritual impact. Your sexual life and my sexual life have a profound impact on our spiritual life. And Jesus several times in these messages is warning the church, stop playing with fire because judgment is coming. And folks, judgment is coming on the West. Let me be super honest and clear with you. It's coming. You can't be the purveyor of the most disgusting and disturbing sexual sins for decades and generations and not experience the justice and judgment of God. So super real, honest question, what have you been watching? Do you think it's okay to just dabble in porn and come to church the next day and that God is fine with both? Do you think it's okay to see women as objects to meet your desire or vice versa men? Jesus is warning us that judgment is coming and his call all throughout these two chapters, his call is to repentance. This is his call. This is his call and it was experienced in that first century and his call to us today is the same. His call to us today is don't just pray a prayer and then go on living your life the way you want to. Don't just pretend like you mean it. He's calling us by repentance to come out of these things that are troubling us. He's calling us through repentance to separate ourselves for him. That he, Jesus, would be the object of your affection and your desire. That he would be the one that you look to. The one that you learn from. The one that you direct your attention and your life toward. Hey! 
whose heart just raced? Thanks, Anders. We meant to do that. The word repentance in scripture means to turn around, but the connotation of that is what you just did. It's a quick snapping of your neck. It's a quick, frightful turn. And that, that is exactly Spencer's like freaking out here. All right, let's just all calm down. That was just a drill, everybody. <laughs> that is a living demonstration. You won't remember anything else from today, I guarantee it. Well, that's a living demonstration of what repentance is. It's hearing the voice of God, firing your neck around and saying, where are you? I am walking out of this nonsense in my life. I'm setting myself apart for you. I've decided to live for you. I'm not playing around with culture anymore. I'm not living to be accepted and favored by culture. I'm not living to indulge in my own desires and live out my fantasies. I'm not living for any of that. I'm living to be devoted to you. And Jesus, in the same way that Anders rushed in, he rushes into our life and he says, hey, I'm not over there, I'm over here. And I'm calling you, I'm giving you time and space to turn your life back around and face me because I wanna lead you. And where I lead you, he ends all of these with a promise. I wanna give you life and life to the fullest. He who overcomes will eat at the wedding feast of the Lamb with me. He who overcomes will walk through the garden of Eden again with me. He who overcomes will rule and reign with me. But the key word is overcomes. And this is my final challenge to us. And this is gonna be a deep probing challenge. The criteria that Jesus sets out is remaining faithful to the end, not praying a prayer at the beginning. I want to ask you some hard questions. I don't want to upset you. I'm not looking to stir the pot. That word overcomes was a military term that suggests our Christian life involves struggle against anyone or anything that seeks to undermine the Lordship of Jesus. We don't overcome by returning hostility, but by laying our lives down in the confidence that God one day will bring justice and judgment and will vindicate us. Jesus is saying you're called to be faithful to the end. This actually fits with two prevailing views of eternal security that I just wanna open up for you today. The first historic view of what Jesus is talking about is found in Calvinism and the second Arminianism. The Calvinist believes that the person who walks away from Jesus in the end was never really saved to begin with. And the Arminius believes that the person who walks away from Jesus loses their salvation. But both are consistent with what Jesus is saying. Both are consistent in challenging, I'm gonna do this gently, in challenging this narrative 
that I can pray a prayer one time in church when I'm 10 or 12 or 13 and then go and live the whole rest of my life the way that I want with no regard for the leadership of Jesus, no distinction from the culture around me, no holiness, no set-apartness that I can do all of that and then somehow Jesus will call me the one who overcame and was faithful to the end. I want to challenge that. Jesus is saying it's the one who overcomes and is faithful in the end. It's not how you start, it's how you end. There's no scripture that defines a prayer we pray. Instead, all through scripture, we're called to embody what we say we believe. That's what the life of faith is. And I have like 30 scriptures, maybe not 30, like 15 or 20, here talking about this reality. Hebrews 6, 4. It's impossible to bring back to repentance those who are once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2, 3-6, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey his commands, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. 1 John 2.15, don't love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Jesus said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it. I want to just point out to you as I close here, the context of this statement of Jesus in Matthew 7 is not doctrinal agreement. It's living a life of faithfulness. The narrow gate is not agreeing with Jesus that he's the way, the truth, and the life. It's living like you agree with him. Jesus is saying, be faithful to the end. And if you do, if you persevere, yes, suffering is part of the call of the kingdom. Enduring hardship is part of the call of the kingdom. Being holy and separated is part of the call of the kingdom. Uh, being uh, culturally distinct is part of the call of the kingdom. But if you endure, if you are faithful to the end, And I have a life for you that you could never imagine or dream up. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite Liz to just come. This was Jesus' word to one of the church, the church in Sardis.
go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels, they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he's saying. I wanna invite you just to close your eyes and I'm just gonna ask Holy Spirit that you would come in your conviction and in your life, that you would speak truth and life, bring conviction and counsel. I sense today for many of you, the issue is not that you haven't prayed a prayer asking Jesus to be Lord of your life. It's that you're not living the words you prayed. You're not living as if Jesus is actually Lord. And his call to you today is to turn back to me, orient your life around me and live as if I am who I said I am. Maybe you're here today and you made a commitment to Jesus many years ago. You prayed to him and asked him to be your savior and your Lord, but you've been walking in other directions. His call to you today is to come back and live like what you said and what you prayed is actually true. For some of you, you're just a Christianized version of whatever you were before you accepted Jesus. And Jesus is calling you out of that. He's calling you out of that facade that you can just be whatever you wanna be and do whatever you wanna do and act the way you wanna act and value what you wanna value and invest your time and energy and passion and strength in whatever you feel like and call it Christian. He's asking you to step out of that and repent and come back to him as your first love. So here's what I wanna invite you to ask Jesus right now. Jesus, what are you inviting me to stop and turn from right now this week? I want you to ask him that just between you and him. Jesus, what are you inviting me to stop and turn from right now and this week? And he's gonna bring some things into mind. He's gonna bring addictions into mind. He's gonna bring unhealthy habits into mind. He's gonna bring a whole bunch of stuff to mind that are very real. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Look for it everywhere. Jesus, what do I need to stop? in order to turn to face you. And here's the call of Jesus. If you wanna follow me, stop doing that this week and chase me instead. 
just leave that stuff. This is how you just very practically direct yourself to Jesus. Jesus, this week, I'm laying down and then fill in the blank. Second question, Jesus, what do you want me to start or restart to cultivate a hunger and longing for you? What kind of spiritual practices do you want me to integrate into my life? How do you want me to integrate scripture into my life or prayer? What are you inviting me to start or restart? Third question, Jesus, what are you inviting me to endure in? Jesus, what's pressing in against me and where am I tempted to run, look for an outlet, look for some other way out? What are you inviting me to endure faithfully in? I just ask Holy Spirit with everything that you're stirring in us that you would stir in us a, a deep hunger and longing for Jesus again. A deep desire to hear his words and to twist our neck around and walk in his direction. Father, I pray that you would move into this space even right now and that you would break addiction, cycles of addiction, cycles of addiction to pornography, cycles of addiction to sexual immorality and sexual unfaithfulness, that you would break dependency on pleasuring ourselves, Father, that you would break a dependency on meeting our own desires, that you would break cycles of abuse and that you would break cycles of addiction to substance and to drugs and things that are pulling us away from you. I ask Holy Spirit in your mercy and in your compassion that you would move in and that you would shatter the strongholds of the enemies in our families and in our marriages and with our children and our teenagers and our university students who are walking on campus being assaulted day and night with the cultural indoctrination of our world. Father, I ask that you would demolish the strongholds of the enemy in your church, that you would allow us to see clearly who we are and what we need to turn from in order to follow you and live out your kingdom purposes again in our life. Jesus, we're just asking to be able to do it this week. We're not making big promises to you. We just wanna walk more faithfully with you this week than we did last. And I ask Spirit of God that you would move in and just deposit the promises of Jesus to us. The mercy and life of Jesus to us. Make us wise to the tactics of the enemy of our soul. We're willing to hear not only your affirmation, Jesus, but your correction. We love you just to follow you. Amen.